I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana, and today I'm speaking to Margaret Heldring, one of the founders of Grandmothers Against Gun Violence in the United States. This is part one of a special program about two different organizations of American grandmothers, Forging a Path to Sanity and Safety. You can find part two on Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights at grandmothersonthemove.com. But for now, let's turn to Margaret from Grandmothers Against Gun Violence. So welcome, Margaret. It's wonderful to have you on Grandmothers on the Move. Wonderful to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you because you're deeply involved with and part of the leadership of Grandmothers Against Gun Violence in the U.S., based in Seattle. And of course, this is a tremendously urgent time to be a part of this group, I would imagine. And I guess I wanted to start by asking you to tell me a little bit about the group and what you're doing, but also to tell us why did it feel important to label yourselves, if you if you will, or to acknowledge the engagement in the issue and the engagement in the activism as grandmothers. Well, thank you. I think those are two wonderful things to focus on. And let me actually begin with the second, why grandmothers? Because that to me, as someone who is also a retired psychologist, Mm -hmm. is a really fascinating question. We are not sure even today, five and a half years into our life as an organization, what exactly we've tapped into. But we know we've we know we've tapped into something. And there are always powerful responses to the word grandmother and to the community of grandmothers working together on behalf of a cause. And and for us, of course, the cause is gun violence prevention. I think it has to do with, at a very deep level, grandmothers represent safety. They represent presence. They represent a link for children between the past and their present and their future as they grow up. They represent and they communicate a calm wisdom, a perspective. It will be all right. Don't worry. This too shall pass. They represent, I think, an unconditional love because parents often are the ones, of course, setting the the rules and setting the boundaries and trying to teach in some ways. And, And grandmothers are relieved of that to a degree. They don't need to be the rule setter so much as the love giver. And I also think that grandmothers have a certain quiet authority. And there's a sense of 
you don't want to mess with your grandmother. <laughs> that is so true. Grandmother's a she, force to be reckoned with. Yes, yes. Kind of a quiet force, though. Not mm-hmm. a really in-your-face force. Exactly. Just a kind of a well-earned force. Many years has gone into the making of the force. So we have found that the archetype grandmother, and I think there's some truth in this across many different cultures and periods of time, there's something about the archetype grandmother that is both an anchor and a kind of wind at your back for the future. And so we have been really delighted to discover that. And as you can see by all the different ways I'm trying to illuminate it, it's still a process for us to figure out, goodness, what is this that we've touched? (laughs) What is this that's working so well for us? So our organization is indeed Grandmothers Against Gun Violence, and it formed as many grassroots groups do form. There were four of us having dinner one evening, a few days after the horrible shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in the U.S., and our talk turned to that tragedy and our shock and our despair and our sense of this is not the kind of world we want to leave behind. And then on top of all that, we realized that the four of us, each of us, was at that time the grandmother of a six-year-old. And that could have been our first grader in a school. And even if it wasn't ours, we felt a kinship to all first graders, all children, that we watch out for all children, not just our own. And we thought, you know, we have to do something. This is not acceptable. And so we did what people do at the beginning. We sent an email to a few friends and said, come for coffee, let's talk. And that first meeting was January 2nd, 2013. And now today we are just about to be 900 members of grandmothers, largely in Washington state, but not only. We are growing around the country. And that's very, very exciting to us because this movement that will change this awful gun violence epidemic in the United States will happen when enough people, a critical mass of people, are determined and persistent and effective in pushing change. So we do a number of things to answer your question. We work legislatively. We lobby our state legislators. We go to our state capitol annually on a big bus and walk around and have meetings and testify at hearings. We participated in at least four marches over the past couple of years. We stand on street corners and protest. We write letters to the editors of newspapers and op-ed pieces. We also put a focus on education. So we hold at least quarterly meetings that are open to the public where we have outstanding speakers. We've been really blessed by the people who have agreed to come be our speakers who are teaching us about different aspects of gun violence and, more importantly, different aspects of gun violence prevention. We also spend time and have been very excited just recently to support research. In the United States in 1996, the U.S. Congress really regrettably passed a law that prohibited funding to our Centers for Disease Control to study gun violence. Now, just recently, a month ago, in the new budget for the U.S., there was a lift of that ban, but there were no 
funds appropriated for research. So it's a bit meaningless. What this means is there has been no research or next to no research into gun violence for the last 20 some years since however many years ago 1996 was. And this is a huge gap because if we don't understand the problem, if we don't know what would constitute effective prevention, we are in the dark. We cannot be certain that we're doing effective things. So we decided to contribute to research to try to help fill in this gap. And we were able to make our first contribution just a few months ago to the University of Washington School of Public Health here in Seattle of $10,000. Okay, this doesn't change the research landscape in any kind of major way. It's very significant, though, but yeah. partly in principle to, to be able to make a contribution as the group, yes. but also yes. every dollar, I imagine, would help at this point when defunding yes. is the context. And so you've done fundraising as well. Yes. Oh, it's so wonderful. Here is what has happened. Two things. One, we have a $20 annual membership dues, although you know, if someone finds that to be a barrier, we certainly don't. You know, we certainly don't deny membership to anybody, but we ask, we request a $20 contribution to belong to grandmothers to help with the expenses we have. And what we find is that almost 75% of people who join grandmothers end up giving considerably more. People will pay their $20, but their check that they write is for 50 or 200 or mm-hmm. 500 or $1,000. And over time, we've been very, very frugal, and we're almost an entirely volunteer organization. You know, we've been able to save money. And so we reached the point where we could give $10,000. Then now, we just had last week our very first fundraiser dedicated to support our research program. And we had about 230 people attend and we raised about $8,000, which for us is a lot. It's absolutely uh, is, a lot. So it's yeah. really grassroots, uh, grassroots, it's very grassroots, grassroots fundraising. Yes. And, and we will soon be in a position to apply for some grants. We're working on obtaining the necessary tax-exempt status in order for people to give and be able to deduct their contribution from their tax. We do not have that yet because we have not applied for it yet, but we are in the process right now, and that will support our research as well. Wow, that's just magnificent. And do you have other chapters? Yes. Uh, here is what is so wonderful that happened short, right after Sandy Hook, the same time as we were having our first meeting, a group of grandmothers on Cape Cod apparently got together, and they named themselves also Grandmothers Against Gun Violence. So they are now known as Grandmothers Against Gun Violence dash Cape Cod, and we are Grandmothers Against Gun Violence, and we're just learning to add dash Washington. <laughs> then there was a group in Kansas that was Grandmothers Against Gun Violence as well. Same idea, the same dynamic of you know older women saying, I'm not going to watch this happen. I'm not going to be passive in the face of this. And then Just here for us, since the shooting in Parkland, Florida, we have spent quite a bit of time working with women in probably 
about 15 states around the U.S. who are interested in forming local grandmothers against gun violence or who are contacting us asking, is there such a group here or how do I get involved or what can I do? And most of them, maybe even all of them, end up joining our grandmothers. And then we have been conducting a series of conference calls with them to share with them our story and to encourage them and to answer questions. And And we're hoping that over the course of the next year or so, I and maybe a few others in leadership roles will be able to fly to these places, Texas, Virginia, New Jersey, Vermont, California, all over the country, and spend a day in consultation with these groups that are beginning to form. I wonder how your group feels and if you've talked about the really remarkable mobilization and activism of the young people in Parkland. This does now have the potential, and perhaps I should say it already is, an intergenerational movement that's growing Yes, that's a wonderful question. I I like your word, intergenerational. And one thing I I would say is that even before Parkland, we gradually became aware of how intergenerational this movement could be, and as you note, has become. And that was because we realized our children and even our grandchildren were beginning to notice what we were doing and were beginning to show up at some of our meetings and join us in a sidewalk protest. And we suddenly realized that there was this unanticipated secondary gain to our work, which was showing our adult children and our growing grandchildren what it means to be an activist, what it means to care about your community, what it means to take your own time and your own energy and your own resources and put it for the greater good. And that has just been so heartening. Just this week, my oldest grandchild turned 11, and we were together doing some of our favorite things, including going to the almost forbidden donut shop. <laughs> donuts. <laughs> Grandmothers are for. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and we were sitting there talking. He asked me, did you start Grandmothers Against Gun Violence? And I said, well, yes, actually, I I did. And, you know, he just kind of puffed up. And it was a very sweet moment when he just felt proud that his grandmother. It was also clearly he was absorbing some notions about what people can do with their lives. So to your question about Parkland, we are in awe of these Parkland students. We literally at the march on March 24th, which you may know is called the March to Save Lives, we literally started a little bit late so that we would be behind the students, that we would have their back, both literally and figuratively, because we want to absolutely honor their place, that they are the ones who are moving us forward. And they are, at this point in the movement, out front. And we wanted to be in that grandmother role. We're with you. We're behind you. You know, we won't let you fall. At the same time that we are in such awe of them, we also realize that they're high school students. They're young. They're going to go off to college. They're going to have summer jobs, have romances. Life is going to intervene. And we don't want to put so much pressure on them to carry this whole movement. So back to your word, intergenerational, that's the model we endorse. There's a room for all of us in this. We can all do this together. No one age group needs to be the hero. Right. And it's a beautiful and profound sentiment because, of course, it is about humanity, all of it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And one of the things that in my work with grandmothers, which I've been extremely fortunate to do over the last decade, one of the things that has been so inspiring to me is how transformative it can be when grandmothers use all of the things you talked about, the link to the past and the future, that calm wisdom and that profoundly unconditional love, but how transformative it is through their deep concern for the future of their grandchildren. They have moved into a new place in their lives and developed new friendships, new connections, both at the community level and at the society societal level, but also personal. And have you seen that, Margaret, in group? Absolutely. I can't imagine it could be better said than you just said it. We have members of grandmothers who came to that first coffee five and a half years ago who express often their gratitude for this experience. And as you say, for many of them, it's new. For others, it's been a kind of reprisal of some activism from our younger years. Sure. And a, a chance to kind of dust off those old uh, <laughs> activism things and, and get back out. But for everyone, I think it is a sense of gratitude, a sense of affirmation. You know, uh, I was just starting to feel kind of marginalized. I was just starting to wonder, where's my place? What's my purpose? You know, there's these stereotypes about older people and maybe in particular older women. And this is a chance to rebut those and to defy those and to redefine who older women are. And yes, as you say, there are many people, myself included, who have found new friendships. And sometimes at our meetings, I look around the room and I think we are somewhere between a sorority and a very high-powered grassroots community because there are many, many women in our organization who you know, had rather extraordinary jobs and careers. Doctors, nurses, judges, lawyers, teachers, authors, artists, community volunteers, people who grew up at a time when the women's movement was altering our lives and forged pathways and are strong and resilient women who thought they were being kind of shunted out to pasture and have been brought back in. <laughs> and, yeah, and really love it. Really love it. People do not go away. I really loved how you talked about the archetype of grandmothers and grandmotherhood as an anchor. And it must be extraordinarily encouraging and empowering in the best sense of the word to feel that there is something, in fact, that you can do in both a supportive way for the young people, but also as older women, as grandmothers in your own right, to change some mm -hmm. of the prevailing norms around gun violence in the United States. It must be intensely gratifying to feel that there is something that you can do in community. Mm -hmm. You are so right. This gun violence problem in the United States is just the prototype of a problem that could be experienced as so overwhelming, so awful, so disheartening that it would be easy to feel helpless in the face of it. And it has been so important to take a long-term perspective as we have approached this to realize that this is not something we're going to solve in one year, but we are going to, and we are, chipping away at it. While the movement grows and reaches a tipping point, which Parkland and the student response to Parkland is a, not the, but is a tipping point in the movement, in my opinion. So the feeling of 
helplessness that I think a lot of people felt five and a half years ago and people who are new to the movement report now does fade pretty quickly as people engage and become active and see change happening, which is, of course, so rewarding and inspiring to keep going, to be in the watchword in this country, at least since that 2016 election, persistent. So we are very energized and empowered, good word, by the successes that have occurred so far. You know, if I can just say, we really conceptualize that there are two critical pathways to changing the gun violence movement in this country. One is the legal legislative pathway, new laws, changing laws, dropping old laws, such as that research inhibition law, finding new ways to use the law to shape social behavior around this issue of guns. The other way, and this is what's just been growing recently, is the cultural change, changing the cultural norms to make it no longer cool to be an irresponsible gun owner, for example. Just the way it is no longer cool to ride your bike without a helmet or to drive your car without a seatbelt or to smoke a cigarette. Recently, just last week, a bank in the U.S., the Bank of America, announced that it would no longer lend money to gun manufacturers. That is significant. And different stores have said they will no longer sell assault weapons. You know, and one could despair and say, what were they doing selling assault weapons in the first place? But okay, we're going to take whatever change we can get that's moving us in, in the right direction. So we are seeing some changes in both the legal and the cultural domains, and that also diminishes the feeling of helplessness. Absolutely. And you talked about this being a a long struggle, and it makes sense to me that grandmothers would get involved because, of course, grandmothers can see the long game. Yes, yes. I had a question about the group's role in all of this. This seems like such an intractable issue. It's, it's hard for a lot of us in other countries to understand. It seems to me it's quite a powerful statement to have grandmothers engaged in this issue in the way that you are, because it has the potential, I imagine, to break through what seems from the outside to be a great divide, a Grand Canyon chasm amongst the feelings about guns in the United States. And perhaps it is grandmothers standing in solidarity with young people who are able to traverse that divide? What are your hopes around that? That's a wonderful insight and question, and I really thank you for that. A couple things come to mind about that. One is to confirm your comments from my point of view about the Great Divide, the Grand Canyon, that exists between what in this country are labeled the gun rights people, NRA, the National Rifle Association, people and groups identified as on one side of this Grand Canyon. And then groups such as ours, such as Moms Demand Action, which is a big group in the United States, on the other side. And historically, efforts to find a way to connect and find some common ground or some consensus have been non-existent. People are quickly locked into their perceptions, their belief systems, their points of view, and quickly stop listening to each other. 
And it always takes us to the question, what in the world are we really talking about here? Because on some level, we can probably assume that nobody wants to see 20 children shot and killed in an elementary school Mm -hmm. or 17 high school students and teachers shot and killed or people in a movie theater or in a church or anywhere. What is this great dedication to guns and gun rights? And we really don't have an answer for that yet. But two things are happening that may offer a little glimmer. I don't know yet. It's too early. But one is in this country with this very disturbing thing about guns, two thirds of gun deaths are actually suicides. And when we bring that fact up and shine the light on it, first of all, most people are significantly taken back. They had no idea. And then we are finding that the gun rights groups, the people on the other side of that divide, step forward a bit. They move into a new position and a conversation does start. And we have seen in Washington state in the last two years, some new laws that address suicide prevention that have had bipartisan support and support from both sides of this divide. So we're, we're hoping, we're wondering if that isn't the first still rather fragile, but early place of trying to problem solve together. The second thing is that we have been talking, Grandmothers Against Gun Violence, recently about the fact that of the four and a half million members of the NRA, there have got to be quite a few who are grandmothers. Let's see if we can't find them, get to know them a bit. Let's see if we can't forge new common ground in this discussion, because the history, as you may know, of the NRA, originally, it was about safety. It was how to be a responsible and safe gun owner and gun user. And then it lost its way dramatically and drastically. But there's there is a history there that maybe some of the older members can remember, or maybe they heard about from their parents. And We think we can go find that and in a respectful and uh, collective way, leverage that. But I have to confess that I and I think a lot of us remain baffled about this whole issue of guns in the United States and very embarrassed, very ashamed. It's a horrible reality. You know, as the grandmother of elementary school children, every day that they go off to school, I have to offer up a prayer for safety. And this is an experience that's played out millions of times every day around this country. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I can't imagine, actually. I was thinking as you were talking about speaking to grandmothers on the other side, as it were, Mm -hmm. that you should start some kind of grand negotiation. Oh, how creative. I Mm -hmm. love that. Well, it's what you were saying. I think it does require an entirely new and innovative way of approaching the strong feelings on both sides. And I imagine that grandmothers are perhaps not uniquely, but especially able to do that. It takes me to a slightly more personal dimension of it. I'm just interested to know for you, Margaret, how this has worked in your life, in your consciousness at the moment around being a grandmother. I appreciate that question. It's an opportunity to reflect, have an opportunity to to share. So thank you. 
I do perceive this experience with a great sense of gratitude, this opportunity at this point in life, because for me, Alana, it is a full integration of so much of my life experience, both personally and professionally. First of all, the two of the people most important in my life growing up and even now in my memory and in the way I live my life were my grandmothers. I was really blessed with two wonderful women, quite different, but very loving and strong and funny and original and fearless women and nurturing women. There were times in my childhood that were strenuous, as many children have, and I was always comforted and replenished by contact with my grandmothers. And so I carried into my adulthood you know, a strong internal sense of grandmothers. Then over the years as a psychologist, of course, I was a family psychologist. I, I taught for many years in family medicine, so I had family on my mind all the time. And then I spent 11 years in Washington, D.C., uh, several of those years working in the U.S. Congress and working on public policy, uh, directing health policy for a U.S. presidential campaign. So I was very used to working, moving out into the public square as well, thinking about large-scale social change, thinking about legislation, thinking about bringing people with different points of view together. So then I became a grandmother. And actually, that's what caused me to move back from Washington, D.C. to Seattle when I heard my first grandchild was on his way, I knew I am not going to miss this experience. <laughs> I am going home. <laughs> and an unbelievable joy from day one. And so the timing of all of this was just remarkable to bring together this personal as well as the career path into a whole. It makes a lot of sense in terms of just the cycle of life. The cycle of life. So what do you think would happen if if the world, and maybe particularly in your case, if the United States really listened to grandmothers? I do think everybody would calm down. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good thing. And as a corollary of that, I do think people would be less reactive. I, I think there would be a new norm, which would be defined or, or characterized by more careful listening and maybe a heightened sense of we are all in this together. It's been an absolute delight. I can't thank you enough, Margaret. It's been, it's been both inspiring and reassuring <laughs> to, hear, oh, and to hear what Grandmothers Against Gun Violence are doing. Well, a joy to talk, and I thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.